Hey everyone, we're still on a summer hiatus, but we got a little bonus for you this week. We wanted to bring you the first couple minutes of a discussion that we had for our first ever Human Factors Cast Roundtable. This is our Patreon-only podcast where you, yes you, can be the host of your very own podcast. Now this conversation is between Barry, myself, and Frank. Frank is the host, and Frank has been on the show before. We had a really interesting conversation and wanted to just provide that for you all here. Hope you all enjoy the first 10 minutes of Human Factors Cast Roundtable. All right, this is Human Factors Cast Roundtable. Frank, this is your episode. What would you like to talk about? This is, you're the host here. Hey, hey, thank, thanks for uh, having me out here, Nick and Barry. One of the things I've been really thinking about, and especially after taking a look at listening to some of the previous podcasts, is that Although human factors we design to fit the human, a lot of times we're still human. And so I've been reading a lot on how truly human our limitations are. And I know we've done many things from a technology standpoint and our knowledge, but then also thinking, stopping, pausing for a little bit to think about the in, truly inflexible parts of our humanity and how technology can help us support that or help augment that. That's a, it's an interesting starting point, isn't it? Because what is it? You do get to the root of what does it mean to be human, uh, and therefore, just how much should we be doing? Because you always go to that almost disaster scenario, don't you? So, what happens if we EMP the world and you have no technology engagement, or it just isn't available to you anymore? What's the film where where the cutie little character that that finds life? And he, he takes it back to the spaceship and basically human. That would be Wally. Wally, that's the one. <laughs> He's got the cultural reference. But humanity there has just basically gone to be living on these floating beds and they, they forget that they can actually walk and things like that. And I do wonder, and I think we did touch upon this previously, like with like exoskeletons and things. If we if we start developing things too far that you cannot do a job without wearing an exoskeleton then actually have we done the design of the job and in, in, an injustice? So, yeah, I guess fundamentally, what does it mean to be human? I think that's a really interesting concept. Yeah. Nick, it, what do you think? It, it is a really interesting concept. And I think for me, I my brain tends to go more towards like the cyberpunk approach of like human modification and modifying body parts to be bionic in some way or shape or form. Are you going to call somebody who's an amputee that has a replacement piece of hardware less than human because they're using that? No, you're not. Would you call somebody less than human if they did that by choice? I don't think you would. At what point do we stop becoming human? Does it all live up here? Or is it the body? Is it the way that we function as humans in this form, at least, right? Mm -hmm. Would you still call a brain in a vat that's living off of signals, human, if it's still having experiences, even if they're like virtual hallucinations in like a virtual environment, would you still call it human? It's still having these experiences. It's still feeling emotion. It's still having, these are some really interesting questions. I don't know, Frank, where do you want to take the conversation from here, man? Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned the exoskeleton. And that's something I really thought about it. The initial exploration I had was about the mind. And one of the books had been reading about intent. And so that there's this fairy tale of 
oh, we, if you put your mind to it, anything can happen. That assumes that your mind is 100% yours and 100% controllable at any time. So there are interesting cases where, many cases out there, where we fully intend to do things, but then our primitive brain just takes over. And we find ourselves, oh, wait, there's that bag of potato chips I wasn't supposed to eat, or the thing I was supposed to fix didn't get fixed. But then again, when we think, oh, we don't have any care of any intent, such as watching a sporting event that one likes or a favorite show, nine o'clock or six o'clock, whatever time shows up on Wednesday, I'm watching, sitting there watching Mandalorian, and I didn't have to think about it. And I'm there with my wife watching the show that I like and took zero effort. It's interesting because I've had a, that sort of experience today where there's been a DIY task that I've had to do outside leaking tap. And I know I've had to do it now for at least a month, something like that. It's a really slow leak, so it's, it's not a major drama. But I know that it, and all I've had to do is go to the front of the house, turn the water off to the house, swap the tap off. It's not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. But in the way I overthink things, I, it's taken me ages to, to think about that. But you're right. The ability to just sit in front of the TV and put on MasterChef or whatever other program it is that you're watching. But the, that other example you give around, because I am, let's say, challenged in the weight category, and the ability to sit there and say, I know I shouldn't pick up the bag of chips or buy the takeaway. I should be cooking a healthy meal, which I will enjoy. If I cooked a nice healthy meal, I'd enjoy it because you cook tasty food. But there's just something about ordering the takeaway. There's just something about it. And you know that it's, and that is almost, is that the fundamentally human thing to choose? Or what are the chemicals being, basically you're, you're running off endorphins and the dopamine, aren't you, of knowing that you're doing the takeaway because the takeaway is a treat. And you know that you're going to get that rush off it because invariably it's Friday, so I will then invariably get the takeaway. I might also get a bottle of wine and because it's Friday and Fridays involve a bottle of wine. You've been looking forward to this bottle of wine or whatever beverage you choose all week. I wouldn't necessarily get any, you know, what, do I truly get satisfaction out of it? Or is it just I, my perceived satisfaction out of it? And therefore, how is that being manipulated? Some of those points that you bring up, though, that to me almost screams neurodivergence. Like the ability to just get up and do something. For me, that's very hard. A lot of times, ADHD brain says, oh, I need to do the dishes. But what does that really entail? Someone might say, okay, you just need to go up to the sink, grab the dishes, start scrubbing, throw them in the dishwasher, you're done. Okay, for my brain, what it means is, okay, in order to do the dishes, I must first stop what I'm doing. Then I have to put my hands on my chair and lift myself out of the chair. Then I have to go and open the door. Then I have to go walk to the kitchen. Then I have to, and because I string together all these tasks, these subtasks to get to the point of even standing in front of the sink before I say, okay, now I have to reach over and turn on the faucet. And then I have to select my first dish to wash. And then I have to select that dish. And then I have to, there are different levels at which we think about things. And it's, for me, there are, there are strategies that I employ, at least in my everyday life to reduce some of those barriers to reduce the number of steps I need to think about in order to do something. And does that make us human? Where do you draw that line of, I think we're all human, but are again, with the same sort of theme, are you going to call somebody who is patching neurodivergence with medication 
less human than somebody who doesn't need medication to perform in the same way? I don't think so. And so when you think about technology, are you going to call somebody who uses an exoskeleton with you know, to because they need assistance less human? I don't know. It's an, it's a really interesting conversation. I love this. I think in many ways, I think the, I don't necessarily think it's about calling people out for it, but I think there is a certain element there around how much do we create technology that people rely on a day-to-day basis that isn't just aiding a job, isn't just that they, you know, if we get to the point where we are wearing exoskeletons all of the time for whatever reason, then actually are we negating the way that we exist normally? And I, I don't know. It's a bit like if somebody uses AI to write their articles all of the time and they become a, an author, say a published author, and they've used ChatGPT to, to deliver that. And suddenly ChatGPT disappears. They can't write anything anymore because they haven't got the, that, that technological crutch to be able to do it. I want to attack this from, a, from an opposite direction. Work in the de- I work in the defense industry and we're constantly looking at the way we use technology to outwit the or outmaneuver the opposition. And it's often one of the scenarios that we talk about is that actually, will we get to a point where humans are no longer involved in war? It will just be red machines versus blue machines type of thing. And the was left. Is war truly war if people aren't involved? And because of this, is war just something that is fundamentally human? It's a human endeavor that's supported by technology. And therefore, if we just drone versus drone, that doesn't actually mean anything someone had to initiate it though true is it enough to be sat back there like a somebody with a a chess grandmaster can just two people have a war against each other or does it involve more than that well yeah that's an interesting point especially with the rules of engagement and so is it would war that be just boiled out to various rule sets then Uh, and then we, we have ai and other kinds of things that can more smartly process the rules uh, in terms of on, on the ground, when you're in a more face-to-face kind of situation, those rules are a lot more fuzzy. There's interpretations, nuances. It's okay. I'm the rule. According to the rule, I'm supposed to take this action, but there's something, whatever it may be, a, a cue is something that a machine might not be able to pick up. Uh, humans are really good at that, especially the vision component and says, okay, the rule says this, but something in the world causes me to just pause or not even follow the rule completely because of that. And sometimes that, that saves lives. But is there something a bit more, even more fundamental than that as well, though, that actually we talked about the idea of what is fundamentally human. Is there some, if we decide that we're going to war against another country, because war is a, an inter-country exercise, is, do we, does there need to be literally human death in order for a war to be worked out, would it be enough to have machine against machine? Oh, because then the next step from that is you don't actually have to have machines. You could do it all via simulation. And to how well did you do your simulation? And you end up having a simulated outcome, but you're not going to get to the end of that because surely if you don't get the simulated outcome you want, then you go and blow up the server. I don't know. It's uh, do you need humans to actually sacrifice themselves in order for war to be war to be there? And therefore that's that combat is a fundamentally human thing. It's fascinating. I don't know. Because I was thinking about the same thing. It's what if you had just these virtual fights? Is that still human? Is Does that there... 
Yeah, exactly. Does there need to be? But then we then that tackles esports, right? So, is esport a sport? I think so, because those guys are athletes. They are using their brains to perform these maneuvers within a defined set of rules that these games have established. And I think the difference between like esports and a virtual war is that both sides might not necessarily play by the rule set established and it's who can decimate their target first. And yeah, you're right. Does loss of human life need, is it a fundamental part of war and does war combat is war greater than two leaders? I would imagine at some point those leaders would need to bring in tacticians and therefore extending it the range beyond just two people the leaders you are now introducing military leaders and because of that hierarchy because there are more players involved even at let's say you keep it to 10 you're still having a war between 20 people and the way it plays out will have ramifications for society whichever society ends up losing uh, and winning. And I don't know. That's all good questions. So we've probably taken us down quite a deep hole there. Yeah, uh, war. Yeah. It's a... And that's it for the preview. If you want to hear the full thing, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash humanfactorscast. To host your own Human Factors Cast roundtable, all you need to do is become a Human Factors Cast VIP, reach out to me, and we'll get you scheduled. And hopefully you've all enjoyed the first episode of Human Factors Cast roundtable.